Hello, everybody. The phone's already ringing off the hook. It's a Saturday night, August the 3rd, year 2013. I'm Wong Shoes, and the uh, people said, Don't forget, Wong. Better make sure you introduce the guest at the top of the show. So, Patricia? I'm it's, here. It's your duty. You want to introduce our special guest? I get the pleasure. Hi, everybody. It is Saturday again, and as we promised, we have Mr. Claire Schultz with us tonight. He has a new and revised and very enlarged edition of Fibber McGee and Molly on the Air, 1935 to 1959. This edition was published this year. Now, you may recall, um, and you'll recognize his voice, I think, because he's been with us for several times uh, talking about several books. He's got several of them in print. Um, your, your credits include radio and film historian, your teacher, librarian, former archives director at the Museum of the Broadcast, of Commun Broadcast Communications, writer, author. Um, it's, it's just incredible the numbers of things that you have done. And we're just so happy to welcome you back again, Mr. Schultz. Well, it's good to be back and talking to people who really appreciate uh, Fibber McGee and Molly. Well, we certainly do. I think you recognize that Fibber and Molly are pivot points for us, or the pivot point for this particular show, because we always feature a Fibber McGee and Molly show. Once in a while, we'll slide into a Gildersleeve as well, especially if Fibber and Molly appear on that program, but we focus on Fibber McGee and Molly. We are live, by the way, it's August 3rd. 2013, in case this plays later, we are live. We can take phone calls. We can take questions and comments. So please give us a call at 714-545-2071. Before we finish tonight, I will go back and give an overview of the other books that you have in print. But for now, would you give us a snapshot of the first edition of Fibber McGee and Molly on the Air, and what is different and new in the current edition? In terms of coverage of the show, plus in terms of the length of the volume, it's both considerably expanded. Sometimes I think when an author comes out with a revised edition, readers might be a little skeptical if they see that they compare the two versions and see that maybe only 20 pages have been added or a new cover has been put on, and they wonder if they're really getting a, a new edition. The first edition 
which came out in 2008, had 373 pages. The revised edition has 531 pages, so it's about 30% longer than the first edition. In addition, the first volume had coverage of 913 episodes from the series. In the intervening years, more episodes became available, particularly from the 15-minute era. Plus, I was able to have access to the scripts from the program at the Wisconsin State Historical Society in Madison that allowed me to fill in some of the gaps, particularly from the 1939 to 44 periods, for which a number of those 30-minute episodes have never surfaced in a audio form. So that now there's a entry for every episode from Marion Jordan's return to the program on April 18, 1939, through the final 30-minute show on June 30, 1953. And by having access to all these 15-minute episodes now, there's very few episodes missing from October of 53 to March of 56, which was the era during the 15-minute programs. In addition to that, I went through and listened to every episode that was in the first edition, listened to them again, and made corrections, made additions, comments. In some cases, for instance, I was able to find a musical number, the title of a musical number, that I was not aware of in the first edition. In addition to that, to give it a, a different look inside, I found all new photographs um, for, to complement the text. For a person who's not familiar with the format of, of either book, uh, the book consists of an introduction and then an overview, a format, overview of the show, and then the format of all of the episode entries is listed. And basically, that's what makes up the bulk of the book is an episode guide, which lists the date of the shows, the title, the members of the cast, the roles they played, a one-sentence summary of each episode, the titles of the musical numbers, the, any running gags that were used, and then comments on the episode. This version of the book is a, probably a, about as complete volume on the series that will ever be published. One way, as I worked on this during the intervening months between submitting the final manuscript last year and the publication this year, I was trying to think of a way to make this volume a real special part in the lives of people who remember Fibber McGee and Molly. 
so almost like a premium from those bygone days when people could get a decoder or a badge or a manual or a shake-up mug. The premium I thought that would be the most representative and would be the best gift you could give to somebody who ordered the book would be something they could put on the wall. So I commissioned an artist to draw a caricature of Jim and Mary and Jordan, who were Fibber McGee and Molly. I printed the 11 by 14 work on heavy cardstock suitable for framing and designed a special stamp that I could stamp on each one of these prints to be placed right next to the image of the Jordans. And each of these prints is specially numbered. In fact, Patricia, because I consider her one of Trevor McGee and Molly's greatest fans, has, as she knows, number one. All right. Don't you forget it, Walden. I'm number one. <laughs> I think that's pretty appropriate. That's very nice. So I thought it was terrific, and I do appreciate your sending it. Any order of this book sent directly to me, of course it has to be ordered directly from me. You can order the book from Bear Manor Media if you wish and get it directly from the publisher. But any order sent directly to me, for the cost of the book, the book is $29.95 plus $5 shipping, uh, which, and the $5 shipping, incidentally, doesn't even cover the full cost of shipping the book, but it will cover part of the cost. They'll not only receive an autographed copy of this revised edition, but they'll receive one of the prints making you a very special person. Right now, there are less than 20 people in the world who have those prints. They'll be consecutively numbered, and I keep a record of each person that I sent it to, so I'll know how many prints at any given time have been sent out. Now, I just want—I want, I want to. Like, excuse sorry, me. I want to I'm give sorry. my. I want to give my email address right now, and we can do it later in the program for people who may want to contact me about this, for information about where my address is and how payment can be sent, and so on. My email address is one that sounds very familiar to followers of Fibber McGee and Molly. They lived at 79 Wistful Vista. My email address is wistful79vista at hotmail.com. That's the same email address you could use Anybody could use if they have any questions about Fibber McGee and Molly that I may be able to answer or the Great Gildersleeve or topics related to other essays and books I've written like on the screen, on the air, on my mind. I'll be happy to answer uh, any inquiries related to old-time radio or topics related to those shows. Go ahead. Okay, we do have a call right off the bat. And Ron from Illinois, you're on with uh, Clear Shows. And Hello there. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Hello. And uh, I'll have to, I have to say this had to be a momentous undertaking. 
it's not something that was done overnight. Um, I would think, I think not. I think from the time the first edition was published in 2008, I don't think I can honestly say there's been a week that's passed that I haven't been either listening to episodes of the series, making corrections, or purchasing some new of those those new 15-minute episodes and getting them written up and getting them prepared for this edition. Well, I got to tell you, I, I think it's I've I've always thought it was a wonderful series, and uh, you couldn't choose a better person to be number one. <laughs> I agree, Patricia. Um, but I, I, it's something I've always enjoyed. Um, I think there are a couple of comments I have. Um, oh, uh, I guess uh, maybe observations would be more more proper to say. Um, we were talking here. Was it last week or the week before? that I feel, and I, I think I'm not alone, that the 15-minute episode suffered for lack of an audience. What do you think, Claire? Is that true? Yes. That's, there's no doubt uh, about that. And I think it was part of it was that the, the writing of... Phil Leslie and his co-writers had to change in that because there was no audience, they weren't writing for laughs. They were writing to move the stories along. And that's why, as I mentioned in some of my comments, this sequence of episodes almost seems like a soap opera. They were writing to get one story moving from one day to the next. And a number of those five-time-a-week broadcast recordings sound very much like a continued story. And I it, would agree. And I guess I'm, I guess, uh, I'm, 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 uh, I'm right on target with that. And uh, I think they were good. And I'm not sure that I would, I would say that the writing was weak or weaker, but it had to be different for that reason. And I, I agree with you. Um, the other thing I have to ask you is, um, um, the, uh, I guess the, the most famous running gag on there was the, was the closet. And um, I think it's very interesting that they would even try that on TV. And, of course, it wouldn't work. You had to use your imagination for that. That's right. I think in some of the Jack Benny programs that were on television, I haven't seen that many of them, I think there was one or two where they tried to replicate, I think it was one with Lucille Ball, where they tried to replicate the vault. I think they were both in the vault, something like that. And that, of course, wouldn't work as well. The vault worked best in our, in our minds. Yep. Uh, same thing. A lot of this just would not work. But um, anyhow, it's, just, it, it's fascinating that, uh, uh, that this, this, this is available and, and, and out there for us now. And I, I think it's just great that we have uh, the documentation on this, on this wonderful series. And uh, uh, hats off to you to doing, for doing that. It just sounds wonderful. Well, thank you for your kind comments. If you don't have the uh, the volume this, that I'm talking about right now, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the new features that are in this uh, revised edition. And one of them, for people who are interested in the hall closet, will be very helpful because one of the new appendices in the book lists all the openings of the hall closet, from the very first oh. one down to the very last one. It lists who did it. It lists who did it. 
and it also has a tally by seasons. So maybe you want to hold on and listen for more information about that that I'm sure we're going to t- be talking about uh, before the end of the program. Oh, I'll be listening for quite a while tonight, I'm sure. Thank you, Ron. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. All right. 714-545-2071. Her number is 714-545-2071. Go ahead, Patricia. I wonder if we lost Patricia. I don't hear I'm her. Sorry, here I am. Okay. I, I, you did you did lose me for a minute. I'm I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh my goodness. We're talking with Claire Schultz, who is the author of Fibber McGee and Molly on the Air, nineteen thirty five to nineteen fifty nine, was an intimidating project when it first came out in two thousand eight. But this is a new and revised and expanded edition we that have we a, are talking about tonight. We have a caller. Hello, Carl. You're on with Claire Schultz. Hello, Alden and Patricia and Mr. Schultz. My name is Ken. I'm calling from the Detroit area. Hi, Ken. I have uh, three questions that I'd like to ask Mr. Schultz. Uh, To begin with, as we all know, at least the fans of the series know, that uh, Marion Jordan provided the voice of the character Teeny, and that most of Teeny's conversations were with Fibber. But were there any occasions on the series or any episode where Teeny talked with just Molly? I know one. There were there were some that come to mind where Molly or where Marion, as Molly, stayed in the room. She usually found an excuse to get out of the room so she didn't have to jump back and forth before the voices. But I know there was um, there were some that come to mind where she was in the room, but I don't think they had a lengthy conversation back and forth. The only one. What? The only one I know because I had Patricia transcribe it for a rep convention was the Christmas show of 51. Where, yeah, and I remember her saying that, that she'd, she'd, sit, she'd sit and listen or something like that. Yeah, uh, sit, and, and they had a little interaction, not big, but it was, that's the one I can think of. But maybe uh, there's other. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, it's, the, it's the one with the I'm, little, it was the, what, the doll. Remember? The she, doll, uh, her yeah. Raggedy Ann doll. And right. she sang my Raggedy Ann. And you're right, she and Molly had some conversation back and forth because Fibber was going to give her a great big beautiful doll. And uh, Teeny and Molly had a conversation about her Raggedy Ann doll that Molly was repairing for her. So, yeah, there were several. That was the only one I can think of right off the bat. But. Yeah, and that's a very touching episode, too. Uh, it it has a great moral for the fact that Fibber was making a, or they were getting a brand new doll for her, but she really appreciated the Raggedy out, Raggedy and doll, uh, because that, that meant more to her. Mm-hmm. That was her, her always friend. That was December 25th, 1951, if you want to check that one out. December it was 25th, Day. Ah, 1951. Okay. In fact... Uh, as I've mentioned uh, several times to, I mentioned it another time when I was on the program, I think that program and the next one are the two best back-to-back programs in the series. There were better programs scattered throughout, but if you want 
two episodes that really touch the heart but also have a good moral, uh, those are the, the two to listen to. I agree. I love that show. We play that one periodically at Christmas time because it has such a wonderful message. And Fibber, of course, went off on a typical Fibber toot, and Teeny was the one who brought it all home. Can you think of any other that you have found, or uh, did that the one came to mind, too? I wonder if we lost our car. No, I'm here. Oh, there you go, Ken. I, I, I couldn't think of any either. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the other question I have is uh, I'd like to ask Mr. Schultz, um, would you say that references to or about the war were more prevalent on the Fibber series, less prevalent, or about the same as in other radio series of the time? More. More so. I, mm -hmm. I don't think there was, if we're talking about World War II. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think there was... Yeah, that's what I thought was, also. I there have any uh, several that, episodes where uh, uh, references are made. Uh, especially, the one that comes to mind is the episode that was just days after Pearl Harbor. And uh, Fibber was buying everything for everybody wholesale, including a globe. And uh, Molly made some kind of remark about get it while Japan is still on the globe, because <laughs> it might not be for long. <laughs> That's right. That's right. There was oh, I no. about that one. Yeah, there was there was no program. I I think during World War II um, that was more patriotic. And as I've mentioned a number of times on this. Conversations we had with Walden and Patricia, and in the book, when Jim and Marion Jordan came to the microphone as Jim and Marion Jordan at near the end of those programs and talked about World War II issues, or even when they were talking about people starving in Europe, whenever it was, you really felt like these two people were talking from the heart not like some people reading from a mimeograph sheet that was handed to them by NBC saying, well, we got to give a patriotic message. When they came to the, to the microphone, you felt like it was your neighbors talking to you, and that's what I think distinguishes the series from just about any other. You can't find two more down-to-earth people than those Peorians, Jim and Mary and Jordan. I think, didn't you point out one time, Claire, that... The 1943 season, every third show had a a salute or a war effort or a, a theme to help the, uh, to help the war. That's right. Yeah, that's right. They were it was it was I think a, a joint effort by Johnson's Wax and the the War Department to all pitch in and and it was during World War Two. It, it felt like even when you listen to other programs. Uh, because it was really serious business. There was there was there were some doubts during some of those dark days in '42 and and other times. This was a very serious concern that, and that's why when Fibber had a couple of those episodes saw spies everywhere, um, he was not alone. There was a real fear that if the war was fought over here on our con our country, our land here. Uh, we might lose. It wasn't until uh, 43 that the, the tide started to turn. 
I was pointing, I think, a couple of weeks ago, John Dunning interview with Phil Leslie, and they talked about the mechanics of that, how they, I guess they work with the, uh, the I forget what agency of the government, um, you know, the one that was getting, that was making the request to the broadcaster to, to stretch this or stretch that, and, uh, and um, Phil Leslie was talking in great detail how, you know, they would get information and they left up to the broadcaster to, uh, take care of that need for them. And it was very often up to Fibber uh, to play the goat. He was the one who would buy the black market meat. He was the one who would complain about having a, a, a ration book that didn't give him enough uh, gas. He was the one who was to to play the, the thick-headed bad example. And then at the end of the episode, when Jim came forward to the mic, as I mentioned before, he would say, this is serious business. And that's what was so remarkable about Jim Jordan's talent. He was totally believable as Fibber the character and totally believable as Jim Jordan, the concerned American. Ken, you have another question? Yeah, my final question is, as we all know, there was a short-lived TV version of Fibber McGee and Molly, and Jim and Marion, of course, didn't play the lead parts. Uh, was it ever discussed publicly uh, why they didn't? Was it that they didn't want to do it, and if so, why not? In interviews, uh, Jim has indicated uh, that he didn't feel it would work, and he also talked a little bit about Marion's illness uh, and health at that time in the in the late 50s that she wasn't feeling too well in fact he even said that NBC was asking them and considering them to head up to sign up maybe for another year of monitor but her health was was deteriorating at that time I I think sometimes we tend to forget when we look at those programs that it was not only the end of an era for a number of those those performers mm-hmm. because of the radio era, but a number of those people were close to the end of their lives. If you just think about the characters that were on Gildersleeve and on Fibber McGee and Molly. Arthur Q. Bryan died in 1959. Harlow Wilcox died in 1960. Marion Jordan died in 1961. Earl Ross died in 1961. Ken Christie, who was on both programs, died in 1962. Richard Legrand, who was on both programs, died in 1963. These were people who were born, for the most part, at the end of the last century. And it wasn't just the end of of an era in terms of their performances, but it was also an end of an era for their lives. They really looked their age, I guess we would say to speak. Kathy Lewis would look much more palatable to television audiences as Molly than Marion Jordan did uh, in her last years uh, when she was recovering from a number of illnesses. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'd just like to thank you for answering my questions and let you know that just a couple of hours ago I bought the e-reader version of your book, and I've only had a chance to just gloss over it real quickly, but it looks like it's going to be a great read. I, I have a feeling I'm going to be up late tonight reading it. <laughs> so, 
So uh, thank you for answering my questions, and Walden and Patricia, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to Mr. Schultz. Thanks, Ken. Thanks you have a great in. night. We'll talk to you later. Thank you, Ken. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 714-545-2071. Our number is 714-545-2071. I was thinking when Ken asked the last question, last year Patricia and I got a chance to interview uh, the granddaughter, Janice Jordan, and she remembers watching the uh, Fibber McGee and Molly TV show with both Jim and Miriam. And it was sort of funny how she that had that experience with them. No call, you're on with Claire Schultz. Hello, Walden. Hello, Patricia. Hi, Jim. Great to hear great to hear you about your new book and I look forward to reading it soon, hopefully. My question is about the closet. And we know that they used the closet pretty much through 53. Was the closet used a lot in either the 15-minute or monitor uh, scripts? It was not used at all in the monitor scripts. It was used during the 15-minute era 11 times. Mm -hmm. and, and I gather also on the monitor scripts, only Jim and Marion appeared. Marion, I've heard a couple of them where Marion appeared, of course, as teeny. But none of the other people, of the uh, supporting people, ever appeared on Monitor, did they? That is correct. It was just Jim and Marion Jordan. During the 15-minute era, the only two characters from the 30-minute show, the only two actors that carried over, were Arthur Q. Bryan and Bill Thompson. Mm -hmm. But you're correct when you said that, that Jim and Marion uh, alone performed those those three-minute vignettes on monitor. How did I was able to, excuse me, I was able to, in the new edition, I was able to find, and I was never able to see one of these before, I was able to find a photograph of Jim and Marion sitting at a microphone uh, promoting the monitor series. Go ahead, what were you going to say? Yes, I was going to say, uh, did they... Did, how would you? I know you were not Ron, and a lot of us agree that the 30-minute audience shows were the best. And some people even believe that only the Johnsons Wax 30-minute shows were good. I know collectors did not did not enjoy the Pet Milk or Reynolds Aluminum shows as much. How did you feel about that? It it kind of depended on not so much the sponsorship, but uh, actually the individual episodes. I think some of the, the episodes from the, the later era were, they didn't have the Quinn sparkle uh, that was there. And Phil Leslie had learned a few of the tricks from Don Quinn, but Don Quinn had a, a repertoire of different types of humor. And he would very often, as if in a deck of cards, he would toss out a different card every now and then. One week he may, maybe would concentrate on aphorisms, the next week on puns, the week after that maybe on a shaggy dog story, maybe the week after that on a tongue twister, whereas during the... Phil Leslie 
years when he was writing uh, basically by himself at the end of the 30-minute show, um, although Keith Fowler wrote with him a little bit, and then, right, then later with Bill Danch and with Ralph Goodman and Ladin Levinson uh, during the 30-minute era, he didn't employ as many tricks of the trade uh, as Don Quinn did. And, of course, he, he had a, a much better cast, Bill Quinn did, or Don Quinn did, during all of those years. And as happens with any series, I think eventually you start running out of new ideas, fresh ideas. That's why I think I think you'll notice during the the fifty three period near the end you see more repeats in there of programs and that's also true near the end of the fifteen minute episodes. About once a week there'd be a repeated episode from the previous year or the previous season. Go ahead. Two two more questions. Uh the the theme the opening theme song and closing theme was changed about 1941 or so, or 40. Was there, do you have any information on how and why the theme was changed? I'm not sure exactly why it was changed, except that Save Your Sorrow for Tomorrow was the original theme, and Billy Mills, because he was a composer, wrote Wing to Wing, which was the common the one we commonly associate with the show. And that's became, the, the, I think, the, the theme most people associate with the program, which is one way of, I guess, telling a person, being able to tell uh, if the show is an older one or a, a newer one. Some people prefer the, the Save Your Sorrow for Tomorrow. Whenever I hear it, it, it makes me think the show is from the, the early era of the program, the pre-war era. Actually, it was December 24, 1940, when Wing to Wing became the theme song for the first time. Of course, that was, was a very famous show, too, about the, the December 24th show about the record player. That was a very, very good show. And my final question is, in comparing the 15-minute shows to the three-minute vignettes. Did you feel that the three-minute vin three vignettes were on monitor were pretty good considering what they had to work with and that they had been cut so bad? Did you feel they were fairly good? or Very good. Very good. In fact, in the introduction uh, to the book, um, Tom Crocker wrote those episodes. Um, I give him a real nod by saying that any comedy writer could learn a great deal from studying his ability to set the scene in 10 seconds, and he could tell a story in less time than it takes to make two slices of toast. And I give an example here. It's amazing how this one particular episode dealt with National Prosperity Week, and he set the scene in the first minute, the McGee's take stock of the items they can sell in the attic. And so they're up in the attic in the second minute. And the third minute, they're back down 
on the main level, placing a call ready to sell those relics. It's just amazing what he could do, and some of them are just hilarious. Uh, just great, great writing. Uh, Tom's the same writer who who wrote a number of episodes for Bob and Ray, and of course Bob and Ray were great at concision as well, getting people to laugh in just a couple minutes. So yes, there's no doubt about it. There's there's not one 15-minute episode that I would prefer over some of the best of the vignettes. Mm-hmm. Well, Mr. Schultz, I wish you great success with your book, your new one, and I'm sure many of your listeners, or all of your listeners, in fact, will get a great delight out of reading it and keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Thank you, Walden and thank, Patricia. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. All right, 714-545-2071. Our number 714 714- Five four five two oh seven one. I have to give a comment about your comments. I'm going to give a sample of the comments that you have after each description of a show, which I just love. I mean, I'll, I'll skip through. I'll say, okay, this is the summary. I know who's in there. And then I go to the comments, and I just love them. This is not a single sentence. You really put a lot of thought into the the comments, the feedback, your opinions, your thoughts, what happened. Tell me what made you tackle this project with such verve and concentration. When I started listening to old-time radio seriously in the 1970s, and anybody who looks at the, the short paragraph that the on the back cover uh, notes that I describe myself as a dedicated listener to vintage radio recording since 1974 and I have been dedicated uh, I don't think there's been a week that's passed in since 1974 when I haven't listened to at least 20 hours of old-time radio when I started listening to those shows this was the kind of book I was looking for to help me learn about the series. And there were very few books on old-time radio at that time. There were a number of logs out, but that's basically what they were. They would tell you the date of the episode and a title of the episode, and that would be it. And it wasn't until 76 that... I, John Dunning came out with Tune In Yesterday, which was a great encyclopedia of old-time radio. But in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when I was comparing television shows to radio shows, there were episode guides to the classic TV shows available. In the 80s or 90s, people could easily pick up books on the I Love Lucy series or the Honeymooners, the Twilight Zone, Dick Van Dyke. Alfred Hitchcock Presents, there'd be all sorts of these, and you could read through the episode guide, find out who the characters were, find out what the plot was, maybe some interesting facts about it. Was this the first time that actor appeared? Was it the last time? Who wrote the script? And there were no such books around. And it wasn't until recent years, maybe the 1990s, maybe into the early part of this century, when people like Laura Left, who is the 
president of the International Jack Benny Fan Club, came out with the books like 39 Forever, which lists all the episodes of Jack Benny program with the performers, some comments about the show, musical numbers, and so on. And, of course, Martin Grams has come out with a number of books in recent years on Have Gun, Will Travel, and Sam Spade, and so on. But those books didn't exist. And as I listened to these old-time radio shows and Fibber became a favorite immediately, I said to myself, wouldn't it be nice if when I'm listening to this episode, I knew what that musical number was, or I knew who was playing this part, or I knew if this was the first time this person had performed. And so it occurred to me probably around 2004, 2005, somewhere in there, uh, after a number of my articles had been printed in various publications on radio programs and sometimes on movie stars, that if not me, who else is going to do it? Um, so I decided to put together an episode guide and the format of this book is very similar to the one on tuning in the Great Gildersleeve so that people can, can, when they see these two books side by side and they open them up to any random page, they can almost say, this is the same author, uh, put these two together. So I decided to put together uh, an episode guide to Fibber McGee and Molly and then try to go out and find a publisher for the the book. Now, there were books on Fibber McGee and Molly, as, as you know and as a number of other people know. There are Heavenly Days, uh, and Tom Price had access to all of the scripts of Jim Jordan. But anybody who reads Fibber McGee's Closet, which is a giant two-volume edition, it's basically a log to all of the scripts, not just Fibber McGee and Molly, but also the, the Carlton Myers Kindergarten and Smack Out and the other shows that uh, Jim and Marion were involved in. But it's basically a huge log is what it is, telling maybe who the characters were or who the performers were. But in many cases, Tom had to do a lot of guessing because he didn't have access to the audio scripts. So he would assign who he thought might be the author or who might be the person playing the part. And he used shorthand. For instance, for Herb Vigran, he would just say HV. For Joseph Kearns, he might say JK, whatever it might be. And so it's basically in tabular form, just a guide to those uh, episodes, just telling you the date and maybe a slight annotation. So if I'm Same hearing thing. you correctly, you're giving us what you weren't able to find or get or want or need. That's right. And I hope more people uh, would do that. I'd love to see somebody do this same type of thing for Armis Brooks and for the Phil Harris Alice Faye show and the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet and, and so on. But it's 
it has to be a labor of love because publishers like McFarlane and Bear Manor are dealing for are looking at a very small market. You have an audience out there, but compared to the audience that's out there right now, the vast majority of Americans are not listening to us on the internet. They're uh, watching television. We're doing our best to make sure that old-time radio gets into their lives. And we're doing it one person at a time. But you're right. The audience is finite, and it is highly selective. It is a target group. And labor of love is exactly the term I was going to use. Going through this book is just incredible. Um, anyone who, <laughs> who enjoys Fibber McGee and Molly will just love the book. That's the best I can say. Just it love it. It's impossible, excuse me, I was going to say it's impossible in a book format to replicate the feeling we get when we listen to Fibber McGee and Molly. Mm -hmm. But in this particular edition, I tried to do the next best thing. I tried to, in some way, because Fibber McGee and Molly's integrated commercial, the way they used it was unique. Even though Jack Benny program and other people did have an integrated, other programs did have integrated commercials. Mm -hmm. I tried to replicate as closely as possible that feeling in that when a person reaches page 171 in the book, they come to an episode at the end of 1946, and then in the middle of the page it, it reads, just as Harlow Wilcox appeared at 79 Wistful Vista about halfway through broadcast to deliver his sales pitch. We pause here for some messages by those companies responsible for keeping Fibber McGee and Molly on the air. And on the next four pages, I took ads that I found, one from NBC promoting Fibber McGee and Molly, another one that's a Johnson's Wax commercial of Elk showing Jim and Marion and then on the next page the readers are back in the episode guide again so it can't possibly replicate the fun Harlow and Jim and Marion had during those commercials, but that's the closest I can get to in a, a print format. I think what made those middle commercials unique was that they were so enjoyable. They were sometimes the, the funniest part of the show. Listeners listened to those messages because of the clever, amusing way they were presented. And that sense of playfulness uh, ran throughout. Uh, it just is amazing when I listen to some of the, the shows again. I'm impressed so much about Jim Jordan's talents that so often are unappreciated. Uh, I think it's easy to overlook ad-libbing because he integrated it so beautifully with the show. Uh, it kind of slides over that it wasn't part of the script. And I think, uh, help me know if I'm on track here, 
the ads that Harlow Wilcox did in the middle was almost a signal flag that Jim could do exactly that if he had opportunities. That's right. That's right. And I think one instance of the skill of Jim Jordan to improvise and to do it so well was in a 1945 script, June 5th of 1945. Wilcox is hinting, and he wants a feedback that's going to lead into uh, the Johnson's Wax commercial. And Jim says, and it, it, I couldn't possibly do it as well as he does, but he he says something to the effect, if I wanted to, I could break your little heart. And the way he says it, he, the, way, the way he says it, only Jim Jordan could do it, just as only Walter Tetley could put the right amount of skepticism into a question. No other actor on radio could do it as well as, as Tetley could. And there were certain things that Jim Jordan could do um, that were just marvelous. And when you talk about his ad-libbing, uh, ability. I have a blog at rawthoughts.wordpress.com, and every now and then I write comments in there. The last, the most recent one that I put in that blog is entitled Adlibber McGee and Molly. And I describe in about nine or ten paragraphs just an overview of that unique talent that he had, uh, I think only Fred Allen was as brilliant was a as brilliant ad liver as he was, and everybody has documented that. Anybody who's familiar with old time radio, but Jim could fire off a spontaneous line with the best of them, and it's that talent of the quick quip that I note in no less than forty five episodes of the book. He did it more times than that, but I make note of it in 45 of the comments in the book. And I give a sampling of some of the improvised lines that he, that he uses. Some of them come to mind quite quickly. Some of them were about things that didn't go like they should. That famous 1948 episode where the sound effects man didn't get the bulb on the first three cracks, and then it finally broke, and Jim had a comment for that one. There was a 1951 episode when the sound effect for the background noise ended too quickly. And Jim came with, he says, where'd the crowd go? Must have a lot of union customers in here. <laughs> he, he was just terrific. Um, I have a question about personal perception. When you first heard Fibber McGee and Molly, when I say first heard, you had several of them in your ears and your mind. What did Fibber look like and what did Molly look like in your mind before you saw pictures of the Jordans? Not very different than uh, they showed up to be. Uh, I never had a picture in my mind of the way they dressed at the beginning of the program when they were dressing as yokels. Molly with a hat uh, with the, the feather in it and Jim with glasses because they were, they were dressing the part even when they performed it. Yeah. But I, I pictured them as uh, very much the way they were in their, their later years. I have several photographs in the book, one of them from 1936 
1937, just about the time they were performing uh, in their first film, This Way Please, when they look very young. And then I have more vintage photographs. I picture them in my mind more as a middle-aged couple. I think you may have a you may have had a different picture in your mind. I did. And I was it, it was such a strong image for me that I was disappointed and really had a hard time when I saw pictures of Jim and Mary and Jordan. It, it was hard for me to get back into the mindset of the, the magical imagination I had about their house and the two of them. So I had a hard time. I'm odd man out here. I really had a very sharp image of the two of them, and it did not match the real people. Before we go any further, I do want to follow up on the promise that I made to the uh, person who was on a little while ago when I was talking about the hall closet gags. Uh -huh. Some of the appendices are the same as they were in the first edition. For instance, the alphabetical list of episodes is still included, although, of course, there are many more episodes. There are about 330 more episodes listed. And so that alphabetical list is still there. A list of their ratings is throughout the years is listed. But a new feature is a list of the hall closet gags. One of the main reasons I wanted to do this and list all 127 hall closet gags in the appendix, the dates, who opened the closet, and also to break down the hall closet gags by seasons was to refute so many of the erroneous statements that have been appeared in newspapers and in magazines and in books over the years. And in the introduction to the book, I added three or four instances of other print sources I found since the first edition that were citing these incorrect statements, such as the closet became a weekly occurrence, one of the uh -huh. most familiar sounds on radio. And in a 1996 book, two authors, and I quote the book here, claim that the favorite running joke was Fivert's closet, which was constantly being opened by someone who had no idea what was coming. The unsuspecting innocent would be subject to the McGee's howls of don't before being buried by two minutes of falling, clattering, and clanging junk that Fibber had packed into it. I'm speechless. Yes. Somebody didn't listen people, to these shows. These people have never listened to the show. Right after Marion died, the day afterwards, an obituary by the Associated Press reported, whenever McGee opened it, at least once a show, hundreds of articles spilled thunderously onto the floor. And I, oh. I cite more instances of that, but this listing of all of the hall closet gags demonstrates that so many of those statements are completely erroneous. Granted, in 1940 to 41, it was opened that season, the closet was opened 20 times, which was nearly every other week. But when you look down the other seasons, it was opened 
12 times the next season, 7, 14 the next season, 11, 11, 9, 6, 5, 6, and so on. There were some seasons when two months or more would pass between openings of, of the closet. So that appendix alone is a handy guide for people wondering, I wonder how many times Fibra actually opened it, or I wonder how many times Latrivia opened it, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Hello, Carl, you're, uh, on, you're on with Claire Charles. Yeah, hi, guys. Hey, it's Ralph calling in. Hi, Ralph. Hi, Ralph. What's going Ralph on? Ralph in California. Ralph, uh, Ralph, uh, one of our faithful Fibra Molly fans, Claire, and he's from California. And we're talking about Claire's brand new book, uh, expanded on Phil McGee and Molly. Oh, oh yeah, my favorites. <laughs> Do you have a question for Claire? Uh, I, I did have one. <laughs> you lost it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's old age. Oh, Ralph, you are such a hoot. You want to give us a call back in a little bit? Yeah, I'll call you back later. I'm sorry. Oh, that's, that's okay. okay. I'm glad you got to say hi. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm listening to the program, so. Okay, we'll talk to you later. All right, Ralph. There's our big fan, Phil McGee and Molly fan out there from uh, Northern Indeed. California. Indeed. 714-545-2071. So, if you're looking at the number, uh, Claire, it seemed like it went back up to 14. Was that about the 1945 when you ran off? I was just trying to keep track of the... Uh, the your 4344 went up to 14. Wow, okay. So, after the war, that's when it went down to 5 and 6 <laughs> per year. It was 44, 45 was still 11. Okay. 45, 46 was 11, and then after that, it was in single digits. Got it. Oh, my. Wow. Okay. So it, it really, they used it judiciously. Walden and I talk about this occasionally, and my thought has been that the closet was so vivid so frequently in people's minds because Don Quinn manipulated our minds by having things in the script such as, oh, no, don't open that, that's the closet door. Or, that's the closet, don't open that. So even though the closet wasn't opened, the image was resurrected in a show that had that kind of a comment. Hello, Carl, you're on the air. Yeah, Walden, John, in Maryland. Hi, John, how you doing? Hi, John. <clears throat> I'm doing fine. Uh, I even listened to you last night, but I didn't have anything to contribute, so I didn't call <laughs> Well, that was okay when we had Monty Hall live and uh, Jay Merlin from uh, Tom Corbett. It was sort of a busy show. Well, this is quite yeah, a come down I, then I only, tonight. <laughs> I, only have, I only have a couple of questions for your guests. Please uh, do. Were the uh, Jordans rich people? Were they philanthropic? Did they have favorite charities that they donated to? They were not rich. Uh, I know that. Uh, in fact, they downsized uh, later in life. They did have a, a home in Encino for a while, for a number of years. Because hmm. I, 
I always thought that they were on a level with the Jack Pennies, you know. They were known to be rich people, and they were a, sort of a, a hit show. I thought they would be rich, you know. Yeah. And they were very much, uh, pretty much home buddies, too. They weren't the kind that would be spotted out on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, I guess they weren't that type of people. I, I, no, they were always they were always down home kind of people, it, homebodies. I know when we had um, some of their uh, nieces and nephews on, uh, they did a lot of help for distant relatives. Uh, they, uh, Patricia might recall that Leo Jordan mentioned that uh, they owned some of the uh, apartment that some of the uh, sister, uh, distant uh, relatives could live in. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they would help, they definitely would help out in Peoria, Illinois. I remember that. They would, that was, yes, uh, that would yes very much family-oriented. That's right. According to the information that was on the backside of the television and radio star's card, they owned a 1,000-acre ranch in Encino, California. But I suppose in California that doesn't make you uh, unique and rich. That maybe would make you middle class. <laughs> well, it could make you poor as well. I, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, Leo mentioned that he remembers in the late 50s they were raising cattle out there. Uh, somehow Jim had an interest in uh, a certain type of breeding, of breeding cattle or something. And, but eventually they sold that, and you know. Um, but uh, that's also, you know, they they uh, were di- they were very deeply related people too. So they wouldn't uh, help, you know, their parishes and different things too. So I know that for sure. Yes, Janice talked about that. You're yeah. right. Yeah. John, you had another question. Well, I just wanted to make a comment that uh, I can remember years and years ago that we always a lot of people use that phrase we're smack out of this and smack out of that and I never knew where that came from I think that show was a little bit before my time but a lot of people use that phrase we're smack out and I can remember in school if somebody told a lousy joke we always say pay 20 McGee we, we and also I haven't had my television on all week until you're guest. <laughs> You had the radio on. That's funny. That's funny. Well, John, I'm so grateful that you called in, and especially that you could get through. Sometimes you have trouble doing that. Yes, I, for some reason, I just dialed the number and came right up. Oh, good. I'm glad that happened. Thank you. All right. Well, I'll let you continue. All right, John. Okay. Maybe we'll get to talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was John in Maryland. Mr. Schultz, would you confirm for me or explain to me, you were talking about the caricature of Jim and Marion Jordan that's suitable for framing, and it really is a beautiful piece. Do they, does a book buyer get that exclusively through you, or can they also get it through Bear Manor? The only place they can get it is through me. Okay, so if if someone wants the caricature along with the book, 
they have to contact you. And if you have a problem with that or remembering email addresses, you know how to contact me. You all know how to contact Walden, and we will get you over to Mr. Schultz for information about the book. And Claire, if you're going to do any flyers, let me know, and I'll put them out for the Spurvac Convention in November to help out. So if, you, if you're doing anything like that, just let me know. Sure, I can do that. Uh, one, one word that constantly comes up in our culture today is user-friendly. And when I was putting this book together, the second edition, it occurred to me, I wonder if a number of people have the thought, as they're reading through the book or as they're listening to shows, when did Bill Thompson first appear on the show? When did the character of Horatio K. Boomer first appear on the show? When was the last appearance of Shirley Mitchell on the show? When was this character uh, first used? When was the first time the running gag of the Mert that used? When was the first time Fibber said, I flung a fang into, or the first time he invoked my clavicle, or the first time he ever mentions the vaudeville act with Fred Nittany, the first time the little girl who appears on Fibber, McGee, and Molly is called Teeny, the first time the theme song of Wing to Wing was used that we talked about a little while ago. So what I did was make an new appendix that I entitled Notable Occurrences on Fibber, McGee, and Molly. So anybody who consults this can see when B. Benedict first appeared on the show, when was her last appearance, and for all the other uh, characters. I don't obviously include Jim and Marion Jordan. The first time the show was on the air was April 16, 1935. The last time the show was heard was September 6, 1959. That's the beginning and the end for Jim and Marion. It goes without saying. At least I assume it does. I hope nobody <laughs> looks at the book and says, I wonder about how, why would you leave out those two characters? Uh, but, well, we have a very smart group. <laughs> that's right. Did you mention but, how many times Jim joined Mr. Broadcast? Yes. I, I mentioned that uh, that... And that's why I mentioned in the introduction of the book that that's what made Jim Jordan the prime mover of the program. On the times when Marion was not there, Jim would carry on as Fibber McGee and company would just roll right along. And there were a number of times when she was not there. But the two times that he was ill either in the first case on March 28, 1944, Gildersleeve and Leroy came in to fill in on, with a, as if they were visiting and the McGees were out of town. And then on March 27, 1951, the rest of the cast uh, took over. Yeah, those were those, those two instances, and that was very unusual. Without Jim Jordan... There was no Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Uh, Molly couldn't carry it herself. Jim could carry it, but 
Molly could not. Yeah. Uh, Molly was too sensible a character. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Fibber could be a riot all by himself. So the running gags are all listed, too, when the first and last appearance was. When was the first Johnson's Wax Show? When was the last Johnson's Wax Show? Hello, Carl. I've call. often thought to myself, when I think about the influence of the program, you probably are aware, and this is another thing that I included in the introduction of the book, that Betty Hutton recorded a song in 1945. It was a novelty song written by Jay Livingston and Ray Evans, the same people who wrote Buttons and Bolts. Right. And the name of that song was Stuff Like That There. <laughs> and I've often wondered, and I often wondered where did they get the impetus for that? And I don't have any proof that it came from Jim Jordan, but I can definitely say that he started to say that on the program back in 1939, I just knew on January 24th. So I have no recollection of other characters on other shows using that as a catchphrase. Hello, Carl. I can't, I can't prove that stuff like that there came from, from that. But if you want to go on YouTube sometime and just type in stuff like that there or, or Betty Hutton, I very often have heard that song being sung on shows devoted to the 1940s because uh, Betty Hutton had a number of novelty songs during those years. Oh, yeah. She That's had great the song. Big... We have a caller. Hello, Carl. You're on air. Hey, it's Ralph again. I got my question. You do. Good for you. All right. I, I, I've asked uh, uh, Patricia Walden several times. I'm, I'm sure at one time I heard Teeny's last name. Do you have any knowledge of that? I don't want to give any secrets away, but uh, maybe I should let the two of you answer it. No, we don't know. Okay. No, right. that's, and that's, I can't that's, find that's, it. Right. And we've been looking right. for and we've been looking for the broadcast because Ralph says he remembers hearing it, and we've looked around for the radio show, so we can't figure it out. If you remember, there was an episode where Fibber gets a card, Christmas card, from Elizabeth. Right. And that is determined at, by the end of the show that it came from Teeny. Right. During the 15-minute era, there was a time when they're babysitting for Teeny, and it's determined that the, her mother's last name was Taylor, Mrs. Taylor. So if you really, if you really want to be shocked, her real name was Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> I love it. Okay, Ralph, you've got your answer. Do you, re do you remember the date of that show, Mr. Schultz? I'm looking for it right now, and I may be able to find it. Oh, Ralph, I can stop struggling now. Well, yeah, yeah, that takes a load off of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are too cool. Thank you for asking that. I'm off the hook. 
Oh, yeah. So it was Taylor. Uh-huh. Okay. Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor. And, you know, that's one of the, that Christmas show, by the way, uh, December 21, 1948, when we found out Elizabeth, because I got it here on my computer. Uh-huh. We didn't play that last week during our Christmas, and I was threatening to play some more Christmas shows. To, yeah. But, uh, well, maybe we could do that we anyway. Could. We could. But, um, what, a, Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor. So I guess she, oh, I guess, I guess she grew up from being the the, the little girl in the McGee's okay. to a movie star. Yes. The the episode is April twentieth, nineteen fifty five. Here's here's uh. the reading of here's the reading of the comment. This is the first episode in which Teeny's mother appears. Mrs. Taylor's first name is not given, but her husband is referred to as Mark. And the baby is Michael. Teeny's real first name was provided in 1948. When the other shoe drops seven years later, the pint-sized atom bomb is revealed to be Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> All right, now you've even got Teeny's father's name that you asked me to hunt, Ralph. Yeah, yeah, I got that now. Oh, boy, uh, I, I'm telling you, you hit the jackpot tonight. I just knew that I would heard somewhere I could <laughs> not find it. But I oh, didn't want to Schultz ask about the book. I, I, I tuned in a little bit later in your interview. And uh, how how is the book available? Go ahead. You can tell. Oh, okay. Um, you can get it through Mr. Schultz, and you can reach him at wistful79vista at hotmail.com. He'll give you all of the information, and if you buy it through him, you, um, excuse me, I'll erase that. You can also go to bearmannermedia.com and order it, but if you order it through Mr. Schultz, he will also send you a, um, a caricature of Fibber and Molly, or Jim and Mary and Jordan, and uh, it, I, you'll have to give me the size. I don't recall the size. It's 11 by 14. So it's, 11 it's by a, 14. It's a good size. Um, it, it's not poster size, but it, it's a, a, a good size caricature, and it's on high-quality paper, suitable for framing, So and numbered. It, it's a numbered issue. So um, you can contact him, wistful79vista at hotmail.com. And if you lose that, you know how to get in touch with me. You know how to get in touch with Walden, and we'll get you to the right person. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I, I have it. Uh, okay. I'll definitely look into it. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy it, Ralph. It really is a dynamite book. I'm not a big reader, but I, I really am interested in the old shows. Well, this is in pieces. That'll probably uh, get yeah. me going. Well, it's in pieces, and I know that uh, you made a comment about that uh, one time when we were talking about old-time radio books, that when material comes in bite-sized pieces, that's right up your alley, and that's what we've got here. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really, it's really what you would consider a reference book rather than one you'd read from cover to cover. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a lot of questions that pop into my mind, and it, it, it would, I think it'd be a good thing for me. Yeah, and then it'll leave me off the hook. <laughs> no, you can ask Patricia a trivia question. <laughs> That's right. You can say, okay, I've got this piece of information. Do you know what it is? So, well, Ralph, I'm so glad you called. You. <laughs> say that again, please. 
I said, I could turn the tables on you and ask I know, questions. that's what Walden is suggesting. <laughs> and, and you would do a good job. Well, I'm so glad you remembered the question. And uh, I'm so delighted that you had the answer, Mr. Schultz, because I have to nuts. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and that is Well, terrific. listen, I don't want to tie things up. Maybe uh, I'll get off here and uh, possibly call you back later if I'm awake. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much, right. Ralph. You have, and we'll talk Thank to you, you later. Thank you very much, and I, I'm going to listen to the rest of the interview. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Good night. Good night. Seven one four five four five two zero seven one. Thing I remember about the fifteen minute show is when uh, their niece, uh, Fibber and Molly's niece, dropped in, and our friend uh, Gordon McMillan plays their niece in the fifteen minutes. What's niece's name? I for, I don't remember. I just, I, re- I just remember I have- the niece got credited at Gordon McMillan. And, uh, wow. All right. So that would be another character, and that fits into my next question. I wanted to ask about characters. We had a thing going for several weeks asking people to add to the list of characters we heard at different times in Fibber McGee and Molly. We did not have the niece, so we'll have to add the niece there. But including Things like Raymond the Cat and Margaret the Dog, we came up with almost three dozen. Now, these are characters in addition to Fibber and Molly. That's an extraordinary number of characters over the life of a show. Yes. Yes, and it's it's a point that I, I made at one time that if not for Bill Thompson and Gail Gordon going in the military, I've often thrown this out, it's quite likely that Arthur Q. Bryan and Shirley Mitchell would not have been brought on the show. And that would have really lessened the impact later in the show because later in the show, Arthur Q. Bryan as Dr. Gamble and... Fibber, their rivalry became something that people look forward to. That was also an interesting piece of writing because they absolutely loved each other and had enough friction to light a fire. And when we heard terms like lard bucket, you know, it's if you said that to a person who was overweight today on the street, you might get slapped in the face or knocked <laughs> down, but it was a term of endearment between exactly. the two of them. Exactly. And Don Quinn managed to pull that off, and of course the actors did as well. Arthur Q. Bryan and Jim Jordan managed to pull it off, but I've always attributed the success of that to the writing. That's right, and we could talk about the, the skill of the writing um. Hello, Carl. You're on the air. Yeah, this is uh, Kurt from La Habra. Hi, Kurt. Hi, Kurt. Hello. Um, I missed part of the interview, um, but, um, well, two things. First of all, were you, were you able to hear any of the monitor Fibber McGee and Molly stuff? Uh, the routines that were done on, on, on monitor on NBC. Did you get to, to, to hear those? Mr. Schultz? Hear them? 
Yes, I, he wants to know about the monitor shows. Did I get to hear them? Yes, yes, yes that's what he's asking. Uh-huh. Yes, on tape. Yeah, but I'm but because I don't think most collectors have access to virtually any of the monitor routines that I know of. I think it's about sixty. I thought survive. I I don't I remember an MP3. I don't know. I've never gone through all of them just to verify that a true number. But uh, Mr. Schultz, all the script. Did you get a chance to go through all the scripts of the monitors or? Uh? No, the scripts are not available. Okay. The the scripts at the Wisconsin State Historical Society were provided by Johnson's Wax. Got it. So they end with the 30-minute series. So they, they end when Johnson's Wax sponsorship ended. So there's none of the pet milk, and there's none of the Reynolds aluminum there. Uh, let me call right back, because you guys uh, are fine, but he's breaking up over the phone. Yeah, he's breaking up for me, too. Um, have, have you moved away from your phone no. Or no, not at all. Okay. okay, I can I can bring everybody back. Um, yeah, because he's he's breaking up on on every word. Okay, he's okay, okay. Um, why would we do that? Kurt, you you can hang there. We'll, we'll play uh we'll play a little music and I'll we uh we'll establish connections here. So okay. everybody. Okay, Mr. Shell, hang up. Walden's gonna call all of us back. Yeah, that way we'll get a nice clean cut. So please stand by. We'll be right back, we'll be everybody. Right back. So here we go. Here we go. Here. We go. Jaws for Windows is ready. Welcome to Skype. Press insert plus H for a list of Jaws hotkeys that can be used with Skype. Skype trademark 7. Selected Bill Brad. Bill Brian. Oh, plus 1. Reps. Molin. Leap. Larry. At. John. Jerry. Head. Imagine. Fred Burney. Echo slash. Don Aston. Bill Brad. Bill Brad. Online. Do 100. Bill Brad. Online on the mobile device. Bill Brad. Don Aston. Echo slash. Selection Bill, Fred Burn, Imagine, Jerry Head, John Ass, Larry Gat, Leap Docket, Bone Head, Red Slubble, Plus One Five, Bill Prime, Claire Schultz, Phone, Cynthia Cook, Dennis Hart, Frank Rest, Jeff Bill, Jim Taylor, KAZ, Carolyn Hart, Carolyn Prime, Phone, Phone Number, Patricia Applick, Accept SMS Message, Invite the Group Call, Enter, Even Menu, Patricia New, Carolyn Prime, Carolyn Prime, KAZ, Jim Taylor, Phone, Jeff Silver, Frank Resi, Dennis Hart, Cynthia Cook, Select the build, Claire Jules, phone number 611, application, send SMS message, invite the group call, enter, even menu, Claire Jules, phone number, Walden be unloading JAWS, with JAWS time. Music in here. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm okay, just dropping it. Oh, yeah, perfect. All right, there All we go. Right. Hello there, Carl. You Kurt, you're back. Okay, the other point I wanted to make, talking about the uh, the closet, I think I'm not excusing any of the lack of research of the people that talked about the closet, but I think I think the hall closet is one of the OTR urban myths because. For them to say, for for them to say on the day after uh, Marion Jordan died, 
that the, the closet was opened, you know, every week or whatever. I mean, it just that just doesn't make sense. But I think I think it became so much a part of the imagination of the of the old time radio listen well not even the listeners but the people that write about it because the people that write about it and are reporting it are often people that actually don't listen to it and that's the only way that i can explain that that the very early occurrence of that urban myth urban legend of the closet opening every week i mean that's just that just makes no sense but i think i think that's 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 the only thing that you can ascribe that you know that that idea too because it was so much fixed in the mind of everybody because of that and taint funny mcgee i think were the 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 two things the closet and and marion or molly saying that were the two things that stuck in america's imagination and uh like i said i think that's the only uh if there is a justification for that, I think that's what it would be. But I was interested to hear what the numbers were because it was interesting. And the twenty, the first year is is quite high, but but it was new then. So as it got older, you know, it got less, and then you have your like five or six, and then that's you know you really had to wait for it. So, what was the total think, number of closet openings, Mr. Schultz? The total the number entire run. One twenty-seven. One twenty-seven. Yes. Actually, the first season, it was only opened twice, and it was opened twice on that same night, that dictionary night. Right. Uh, what March twentieth? Ah, okay. A forty, yeah. March fifth. March fifth yeah. of nineteen forty. Yeah. Molly opened it first, and then Fibber opened it, but the rest of that season, it was not opened again. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't opened again until October fifteenth, which was in the next season. Uh huh. I made a comment before about the numbers of times that there was written into the script, "Don't open the door," and it wasn't opened, or "Don't open the closet," and it was not open, but it kept it fresh in people's minds that this was still there. And I wondered if that contributed to the concept that the closet had been opened much more frequently. And I think a number of people, if if you talk to them and, and ask them about the Jack Benny vault, they'll say, oh, yeah, I remember that Jack Benny going down there every week. Right. Yep. I, I wonder if anybody ever have actually timed the closet routine. You know, once you start hearing stuff fall out. Because I was listening this evening to the uh, Christmas, uh, no, December 6th of 49, and she might the closet pulled out a little longer than normal. She might... Because you know, it was all done live, and I guess depending on the sound effects, man, looking to play for the laugh. But it's, it's, it's got to be less. It's got to be less than a minute, I think. Oh, it's much oh. less than that. I I timed it a number of episodes. I didn't time it for every single one. Uh huh. But the longest of any episodes that I timed was about 18 or 19 seconds. Nothing exceeding 20 seconds. Wow. I, see, I think in our mind we think it's a lot longer. Yeah. But if you really if you really think about 20 seconds. Let's say the closet is open right now. Yep. We're counting. Five seconds. Ten seconds. 
15 seconds. That's 20 seconds right that's, there. That's, that's a long t- time. That's a long time in audio. Yeah. And you also have to count. You also have to count in the laughter and the applause, because that makes it seem a little longer than two. That's right. That's right. And those scripts are timed when they do those rehearsals. I've got any number of scripts for Jack Benny and Bob Hope and a few other uh, of those shows, and the timing is written down there in pencil, and every three or four pages they have the timing down, and that's what amounts to a lot of red penciling because the show is too long. And a, a long sound effect like that, any number of Phil Harris and Alice Faye episodes got cut off at the end, and so did Fred Allen shows because of the ad living and the bloopers. Yeah. Well, I will let someone else call in, but uh, your book sounds excellent, and hopefully we can get it in audio or an e-book uh, fashion at some date in the future. Terrific. Thank you, Kurt. That would be great. Okay, thank you, Thanks, sir, Kurt. For, for writing such a an expansive volume on, on so, such wonderful people. Well, that's the reward that uh, means much more to me than any financial reward is reaching the people who really appreciate Fibra well, McGee and Molly. Thanks a lot for your efforts, sir, and I'll, I'll yep. talk to you guys later. All right, Kurt. All right. Thanks, Kurt. 714-545-2071 is our number. Go ahead, Kurt. Okay, but before we, um, it seems like I'm fascinated and fixated here on these appendices, but I want to mention one more feature. Um, there's the guest appearances, which has been expanded from the appearances Jim and Marion made on other shows, which is slightly expanded. But the one feature that I think might be most helpful to people looking for just a character or looking for an actor, maybe a, a person would wonder, did Joseph Kearns ever appear on the show or Ed Bagley or perhaps did Loreen Tuttle ever appear on the show or Bill Conrad? I added an index at the end of the book so that people can get that answer very quickly. For instance, you mentioned uh, Gloria McMillan. Right. A person, a person can look right in the index and see that she's on page, she's, her name is mentioned on 248, 252 to 257, 261, and 356 to 357. So a person could get all the answers they would want about Gloria McMillan and the characters she played and so on just by consulting those pages. Were you able to find um, listing of actors' name on some of the script from Wisconsin? How were you able? Uh, cause, you know, that's a big job. It, you know, get to uh, listen to the radio shows and write down the, the credits. Did, did the uh, did the scripts have their names listed too? Unfortunately, they did not, and mm. that was that was one of the the frustrating parts of of going there to Madison was. To identify more of those supporting actors not credited by Harlow Wilcox. When Wilcox would read them off, and that really started basically when, after Bill Thompson came back after the, the war, from then on, for the most part, almost all the actors were credited. But in looking at those early scripts uh, from the late 30s and the 40s, so often, Don Quinn and Len Levinson, who helped him a little bit, and Bill Danch, who helped him on some of those scripts, 
would just use a generic designation like girl or man or tough or clerk or mailman. So you didn't know who that person was, and that, that could be a little frustrating. Uh, you'd ask yourself, could it be Frank Nelson? Could it be Mel Blanc? Both of those characters, both of those actors were taking various roles in the late 30s and early 40s, but I didn't know. And so that was a, a frustrating fact about the scripts. But I was glad just to find out certain parts about those episodes for which there are no audio records. For instance, Fiverr, we talked about those number of performances in which Jim Jordan was the main thrust of the, of the program when Marion was not on the program. Quinn assigned Fiverr all sorts of picaresque adventures during the time when Marion was not on the show. He'd be a mayor of a town, or he'd open a matrimonial bureau. He would act as a real estate agent. He would serve as a fireman. He would operate a movie theater, cover the police beat as a reporter, host a quiz program, supervise a band, leading the Boy Scouts. He'd go hunting in my...